Well, this morning, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Verse 12, I'll begin reading there. On the next day, many people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, well, they took palm branches and they went forth to meet him. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting upon a donkey's colt. He says, All these things they understood not, or understood not the disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they the things that are written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. Well, the people, therefore, that was with him, uh, when he called Lazarus out of the graves, raised him up for, uh, and raised him up from the dead, they bear record. For this uh, cause, the people also met him, that, uh, for they that had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how uh, ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. Lord, we thank you for you this morning. We ask that you would open it up to us and speak to us. Something, Lord, perhaps we've sat through many, 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 many sermons reflecting, Jesus, on this wonderful day of you coming in, preparing to offer yourself a ransom for many. Lord, we pray that as we look at it again, maybe perhaps from different perspectives, that you would open it to us and touch us afresh with it. We ask it, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Well, the triumphant entry of Jesus, of course, also known as Palm Sunday for, because of the branches there that were uh, you know, thrown down before him there the week before his crucifixion is so soon to happen here. But it's one of the few instances and, uh, that is actually in all four Gospels that gives it great significance. Anytime anything is there repeated again and again by all four, it, it puts itself at a level there of not just simply kind of a nice story. It's something I believe is very much worthy as a momentous occasion. Something there that bears great significance, not only to the Christian world, but to all the world. And of course, here we have on that day, when you piece together the four disciples, there that uh, the, uh, Jesus comes into town, Jerusalem there, on a borrowed uh, donkey colt uh, there that never been ridden before. And uh, the disciples had been sent into town. When you look at the other accounts, Jesus told them, I want you to go here to such and such a place. You'll see, you know, a young you know, donkey there, never been ridden. And he says, you'll take this. And if somebody asks you what's going on, what do you think you're doing taking my donkey? They just say the master has need of him, and he'll let him go. And sure enough, they're sent in. They, you know, I wonder what it would be like sometimes as a disciple. You're sent on all these various missions or around doing things, and you realize you're operating in a world that's unknown to you. It's, it's unfamiliar. How did he know this? How did all this happen? But that's kind of the way of Jesus. You know, it, it tells us about Jesus that he knew all things. And so it's kind of convenient when you know all that stuff. <laughs> Being God has got some wonderful perks to it. But uh, at any rate, here he sends them in. And sure enough, there they go. They take it. And they, what are you doing? Well, the master has needs. So they bring it back. It tells us here that it, when this is all happening, they didn't know it. It wasn't until later on, John tells us, that they even realized they were fulfilling Scripture. This is all part of the plan, you know, that had, been, that had been laid out. And then as he comes into town, again, it's all again being all fulfilled. It's all happening. They're laying before him the people they'd gathered in massive numbers. 
And we're told there as well in the context of John that this was as a result of many of the people as a result of the miracle of Jesus in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That that word so recently happening here now in Bethany that now it had traveled over to where now uh, this unbelievable miracle worker there is now entering into town. And here as this is happening, uh, there are the people lying the streets. And here is there's quite a multitude, we're told there, as Jesus comes. And as he comes, he told there, he comes, the king comes there in the name of the Lord. And here as he comes in as king now, he heads on into town from there as this is all happening. And he goes on in, he heals some people, teaches some people, goes into the temple, throws over the money changers, uh, you know, tables there drives them out, says, you've made in my father's house a den of thieves. And, uh, uh, and then, though, as this, all this is happening, it's, it's extremely uh, significant. We sometimes, again, because we've just heard it over and over and over, we, we sometimes it doesn't collect it within us, realizing how, how different this scene is than anything that Jesus had ever allowed before. Not that the people hadn't wanted him to become king, hadn't that they hadn't tried to pressure and force, that had been there, but he would have nothing to do with it. He would say no, or he would just slip out and didn't allow anything to progress within the people. And so there was already kind of building up uh, this secret, or maybe even not so secret momentum, that, uh, uh, that he's our king. He's the one we're looking for. But yet Jesus never acknowledging it, never even leaning or allowing anything like that. But now all of a sudden the pendulum seems to have swung the exact opposite side. He's not only now not denying it any longer, he is actually there the one that has scripted it. He's actually the one that has laid it out. You go into town, you're going to find a donkey there, this is going to happen. And then next thing you know, he lets this whole collection of people's thoughts that have been around him for years, and there are massive numbers of people there in Jerusalem at this time. It's the Passover. And here is somehow another word has gone through Jerusalem there, you know, and, and there they are, lining the streets. And as they find themselves in this, here now he's openly, clearly, unquestionably identifying himself as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. The Old Testament prophecy, even there, Matthew, he quotes it out of Zechariah 9, which he says, Rejoice greatly, you know, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt to the fowl of a donkey. And here they are, they're spreading out their cloaks. They're putting out these palm branches in front, paying homage, royalty. And as they're doing it, they're shouting. They're just shouting, the people there rejoicing greatly, we're told about this. And, and here, when this has, it has the picture of not just simply, you know, applauding or not, but it's, 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 it's amazing there. I mean, a great shout, a great rejoice. It's like something that had been pent up in the, the Jews for so long. It's finally found a release. It's finally, they're, they're looking there, and, and, and this truly is our king. This truly is the one that, you know, that, that can do whatever it is that he wants to do. There's no doubt about it. In he has come. And here this praise is just lavished upon him. And, uh, uh, and it wasn't so much there because they recognized him at all as a savior from sin. They were, many of them were not interested in that so much. They were looking for a, a messianic deliverer who would get, get them out for their revolt from Rome and break that bondage that they were on. 
and not that they were looking at Jesus as, as a spiritual savior. They were looking there as a military deliverer. They had just heard of his power in raising Nicodemus, I mean Nicodemus, raising uh, uh, Lazarus there from the dead. And here realizing there this miracle and right it we're told in John on the tale of that, the word has gone out and now he's coming. And now he is openly announcing himself there as <laughs> I'm not only running for office, I am the office. I am the king. I am, you know, you're, uh, the Messiah. And here, sadly there, only as the few days linger on, when you hear this incredible momentum, uh, does he capitalize on it? They'd pushed him and pushed him before, but he never relented. He never gave into it. Well, now he's given into it. Now he's in Jerusalem, but then as he's there, he's doing nothing to do anything with it. He's not drawing them. He's not leading them. He's not participating in any of this stuff. And, and how amazing there that instead of leading, you, you've got them. We're ready now. Lead us. What do we do? We want to, you know, get the revolt going. You know, it's massive. We're here in, in numbers beyond our dreams there, you know, to drive out these Roman occupiers. But how amazing in only days. Only days when there Jesus off the scene, out of the crowds, not taking any advantage of all there that they had offered to him in only a few days to imagine the same crowd, you know, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And you look there as neither the same crowd that made him a hero in one day, now they abandon him only days later. But you see here, of course, we know that when Jesus came, he did not ever come with a sense of a conquering force like earthly kings. You come in with your army, you come in with your military, as they'd all done. Every king before and after that came in there, he had his kingdom and he was now going to dominate. And whatever forces were in his kingdom, he drove them out. He set the people free that were in it. That's what kings do. That's what they've always done. And here Jesus now, he says that he's king, but he doesn't capitalize on it at all. No force at all, no pressure, no bringing anything together, no discussion of it. But they don't realize here that when Jesus came, he came with a force far greater than them, far greater than they could ever imagine. And it wasn't a physical force. It was far greater. It was a spiritual force. It was an eternal force. What he was going for is something much deeper. He wasn't looking there, I'm going to dominate the bodies of human beings. I'm going to force them into subjection. I'm going to fight them. I'm going to bring them down you know, uh, there and, uh, and, and have them cower before me. No. I want much, something much more than that. Way beyond that. I'm here with a greater force, and it's the force of love, the force of grace, the force of mercy. Something there that when that came there, I might be in that, I'm not, here, I'm not here for your body. I'm here for your heart. I'm here for your soul. I'm here for at, at you at the very root of your being. I don't, to, to get a human body and to bring it in subjection, you know, any earthly king can do that. I'm here for your eternal soul. I'm here to transform your life, you know, and, and, and to set you truly free, a much greater freedom than any king has ever given to any of his subjects ever at all. And here there's something that as you look at triumphant entry, it ought to have a wonderful renewing effect upon all of us. Every year as we look at it, not just as a memorial, not just something that we look back on, but we look at it afresh within our hearts and within our lives of Jesus coming to our town, our heart, our life, coming in to usher in his, his, his joy and his forgiveness and his presence, 
again and again. Here as he came, recognizing that for us, that he was to give his life a ransom for many. He was coming to trade his, his place with ours. And literally there at the deepest sense of the word and to set us free. And he who knew no sin was to become sin for us. He who knew no sin himself, guilty for nothing, but when he stood before Pilate and he, he didn't, he, 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 tell us why. You know, speak for yourself, you know, that you're, that you're not guilty. He uttered not a word, but as a lamb, dumb before the slaughter. The reason he didn't defend himself is he wasn't there on his behalf. He was there on my behalf. There was no defense for me. He was silent because there he had taken that place. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, as uh, there are days, you know, I mean, earlier there, he had, he had looked there and, Father, is there any other way, in a sense? Father, I would that you'd remove this cup from me. And nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Father, if there's any other way, any other way to do what I've come for, I, I would you'd remove it from me. Uh, you know, I, I take, I, I don't do this cup, to drink of this cup. And there, but the fathers, we know there's no other way. There's no other way. You're the only one that can die for them. The only one that can forgive them all. You're the only one who has the blood that can cleanse them because the only one who's pure. And here, of course, he knew this, but they're looking at his death. You know, Jesus looked at his death entirely different than any of, any of others. We all, you know, when you look back at the history of martyrs and so many of them rejoiced and they sang at the offering of their own death, sacrifice of their own life. Uh, you know, my 13th great-grandfather was a man named John Rogers. He's in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And uh, he was burned at the stake at February 4th, 1555. And for the gospel, communicating it. He, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica says that what Martin Luther was to Europe, uh, John Rogers was to Britain. He was a powerful man, but he, the, the queen there, you know, because she was... Opposed. I mean, she, she was under the law of Catholicism, and there, as he's preaching the gospel, and he wouldn't stop. He's hauled into court. He ends up for it, you know, being ultimately, he defended himself. He graduated from Cambridge in Greek and Hebrew. Actually helped finish the Tyndale Bible, led to Christ by, John, by William Tyndale, we believe. He was very close friends with him. Tyndale was martyred before he could finish it in Coverdale, and Rogers finished it. And... Uh, yeah, but, and actually, the Tyndale Bible, if you've ever seen one, it was first called uh, you know, by another name. He, Rogers named it after one of his sons. <laughs> he didn't write, Tyndale did it on 90 some odd percent of it. But there, this man, he was so convinced there of the gospel, the truth, and he passed out Bibles. He ended up being hauled into court, defended himself the first time. Then they brought him back, accused him again in a secret court because he won his first case because he was such a scholar. But then Queen Mary brought him back in. And there they had a quick trial, found him guilty. And, uh, you know, being a heretic. And so they, there the night before he was to be turned, you know, taken to Smithfield. And uh, there where he was burned at the stake, the, the uh, jailer, uh, you know, was sent to him and said, if you will recant, Mary, you, you, you'll, she'll set you free. In his famous words in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he says, that which I have said with my lips. I will seal with my blood. And there as he went, there people lined the streets, rejoicing and singing hymns. As there he went, his, cry, his death was wonderful. His death was a celebration. Jesus sweat as it were great drops of blood. Jesus there agonized over it. 
And here, as he looked at that, why have so many martyrs rejoiced? Why have they sang? Why has it all been? Well, you see, their, de their death delivered them right into the presence of God, right into his presence. The moment there, they're jettisoned, catapulted into eternity. But here, Jesus' death, he was catapulted out of it. There is he there, he was to look there, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He had never been a split second out of perfect communion with his other self, the Father and the Spirit. Now is to be rejected. Now is to tread out the winepress alone. And the agony, the thought of separation from the Father. Sweat as it were great drops of blood. Father, can you remove this cup? But because he loved us, greater love hath no man than this, than he give his life for sheep. I'm the good shepherd, I give my life. And when you look there at Jesus' death, what he went through, what he was going into, you know, the here when God you know, drove man and out of the garden for the sin and the, you know, that, that man had committed and turning away from God. It says he put a sword there at the east gate, there to guard every which way there of the garden, lest man you know, return. But Zechariah tells us there, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, but I'll turn my hand to them. Here Jesus was to go back into that garden, but instead of dodging the sword, cutting between it, behind it, commanding it to lay low for him so he could pass, no. Awake, cut him to ribbons. Beat his face beyond human recognition. Stick a crown of thorns upon his head. Rip his back open with a cat and nine of tails. Pierce his hands and his feet. You know, you know with nails. Stick a, sword, a spear in his side. Just absolutely tear him to shreds. The sword did for you and for me. That's what he was coming to town for. That's what it was all about. And here as he came in there, this is what was happening there as he was taking that place. And here, though, as the people lined the streets, that's what his journey, that's where he was going, to be a king of another world. And Jesus told the Pharisees, you know, he says, my kingdom is not of this world, else I'd take it. I created the thing. I would have no problem taking it. And he says, it's not here. It's another world, another realm. He says, you all say, you know, the kingdom of heaven dwelleth here, dwelleth is there, here, or there. He says, the kingdom of heaven is in you. That's where I, that's the kingdom I'm looking for. That's what I came to get. That's what I came to dominate. But here lining the streets at this time as all of this is going on, you know, there we see this crowd of people, the masses, and the, and the people there, they, it's interesting, they all had different perspectives. They all had different reasons and different things that was kind of making them click. Why were they there? What was it they, that they were in there for? Here they're applauding, they're singing, they're, 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 they're worshiping. They're doing all these incredible things. They're shouting, rejoicing, only to turn on him. Why was it different with some? Well, there was different perspective, very simply put. One is, is there's the Jewish perspective. There it was lined with Jews, of course, we realize there. But, it, but many of the Jews that were there, they, they too were looking there. They're looking for a king. And they believe with all of their heart that, that, you know, without any question, they're looking for a king and this was it. Every one of them, I think as they're singing, they're rejoicing, lifting their hands, praising him, thrilled beyond anything of a, of a king coming in. This is our king like unto Moses. And we're beholding him, the thrill that they all had to have as they looked at it from their own perspective there because there was something there. He's going to break the oppression 
what we've been under. And he's likened unto Moses, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 15, he says, the Lord your God will raise up, you know, for you a prophet, like, uh, you know, to me in your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall you hear. He says, Moses says, another is coming after me. Another place greater than I. Deuteronomy 34, he says, but since then, Moses, again, there, or it is scripture, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, to whom the Lord knew face to face. And the people are looking and realizing, Jesus is Moses. Or he is the, you know, not Moses himself. He's the deliverer. He's the one Moses promised. He's it. He's likened unto him. Moses, the Bible says, he knew God face to face. And if ever we've ever seen in all of our life a man who undoubtedly knew God face to face is Jesus. He knows him face to face like Nicodemus when he came to Jesus. We know thou art come from God. No man can do the things thou doest except God be with him. I know where you came from. We've all got that. We're all trying to figure it out. And here is they're, they're looking there. Yes, you, you see him face to face. Yes, you know him. But also, he not only knew him face to face, he had raw power. Unbelievable power. Whatever he willed, he could do. Multiply loaves and fishes. Feed people by the thousands. You know, he could calm the seas. He could walk on water. He could raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. He worked in the physical world, the spiritual world, every dimension of life. He penetrates it. He sees it. He, and he rules it. There's nothing under his, dom, his dominion. He's, and he is a greater than Moses. Now we just have to encourage him. Now do it. Do it universally. You've been doing it here, doing it there, all silently, all a little bit here. And then you dodge and you sneak off. And you're someplace else. You don't take advantage of the potential. You aren't gathering the masses. Well, now for three and a half years, little by little, Perhaps with a wisdom beyond all of our dreams, you have been gathering them. They're all here, Passover. That's when they gathered from all over. And so here we have these people that had touched in all these different ways that now, by Jewish law, they come, they're there. And now, he's done it. What we tried to get him to do, what we urged him to do, was the time. Now it's to be the time. Now he's doing it. And they're rejoicing as his rejoice greatly. There, O daughter of Zion, shout. Behold, your king is there. And here they're beholding and they're shouting and they're rejoicing. Not just rejoicing, greatly, magnificently. They're overcome by it. We're free. We're free. It's come. It's, it's, it, now it can't be stopped. Now somebody there, he, he, if anybody can stand before a Caesar, a human man, this man can. If ever a person can dominate whatever he chooses, he's never chosen. Now he has chosen. He's taken the step. He's out there. And the crowd as well, they're filled with zealots. Filled with a whole, uh, you know, innumerable numbers of, of Jews were, were zealots. They were ones that were passionate. They were militaristic. We were ready to fight. Constantly in the time to stir the people up was always when they gathered there in massive numbers and at Passover. The masses were there, but yet the highest celebration of all the Jews, Passover. The celebration of Moses delivering them out of, of, out of Egypt. Now, we're here to celebrate our liberty from Rome. And here is there, they're stirred, they're excited, they're into it, and they're looking, there he is. There's the one that's going to set us free. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, he's the one of power.
He's going to dominate. He's going to put us back on the map. We're going to be somebody. We're taking over, and they're going to be nobodies now. They'll be our servants. That's what they know. That's what they think. That's what's moving them. A greater prophet than Moses is there. And you know, when I became a Christian, that was my Jesus, to tell you the truth. I became a Christian. I was at junior in college. And I was kind of an athlete. Never did great, but I was one, tried. And I was in a dorm in college with a bunch of, of athletes. And, uh, and at that time, I got saved when I was a junior in college. And I was very dramatic for me when I did. I was, became quite zealous. And in my room, I put up this big picture of Jesus by a man named Hook. And it was a, I, I thought, an incredible picture. That was my Jesus. And it was one of those Jesus when he, he, he was a very handsome man. Skin was rugged and tough. And, and the, the, the Palestinian sun had beat against it. And he had this heavy beard, you know, there, a high cheekbone. And he was a man's man. And he's looking off in the distance. And, the, and his neck there, the, the muscles are bulging. Vessels are kind of coming out. And he was macho. He's a macho, he's a dude. That guy, that's my, my, my Jesus. Well, I hung that on the wall in my room. And one day, a basketball player across the hall, he comes in, he's looking, we're talking about something. He looks over, he says, who's that? I said, that's Jesus. He said, that's not Jesus. I said, it is too, that's Jesus. We actually, true story, got in an argument about if that was Jesus or not. He says, I've seen pictures of Jesus all my life. That's not him. And, you know, and I said, I know the picture you've seen. You know, yeah, and he said, yeah, he's got beautiful golden hair. A woman covets it. He, they, you know, they wish they had that, you know, and these beautiful white robes that he would have. And he had a shepherd's staff, and he's out in a field, and there's little children, there's sheep, you know, little hanging around, little lambs. That's, that's, I, we've, that's, that's Jesus. I've seen it forever. No, that's not my Jesus. That's not Jesus. This is Jesus. No, that's not. We actually... <laughs> it was later on I came across Isaiah that tells us he was not handsome. He was not comely that we would desire him. He wasn't somebody when he walked in the room, he was a head turner and people looked, who is that guy? I want to follow him. No. No, he was somebody meek, gentle, mild. He was somebody there that he was there not to dominate there the appearance of life and the externals. He was after something internal and much deeper than that. But that was something there that, 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 that was mine. I, I went and make no mistake about it. Jesus was tough. I didn't know in that. I mean, he was a construction worker. He, he built tables, and he knew how to throw them over and to handle any situation that was there when he, when he did. And he handled it. But here there's something as he, you know, goes in, and, and when he did, nobody touched him. They stayed clear. And, uh, but here is he, is he's come in, and he's revealed himself. And here, though now, was he as Moses, was he going to do what it was that they wanted? No. He's not taking advantage of anything. We've given you our praise. We've given you our life. We're ready to go to war. What do you want to do? He does nothing. Instead, his face is like a flint set to the cross knows that the Pharisees and the Jews are mounting, you know, there to take him down. There is, they, 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 they want him dead. They want to take him. They want to destroy him there. And realizing he seemingly is doing nothing about it, the momentum is dying on this side that he couldn't take advantage of, and it's building on the opposing side to crucify him and to take him down. 
And here's some look there at the betrayal of Judas. They're like it was almost a noble thing he was trying to do. That here was something, Judas, a zealot, they, you know, Jesus isn't doing it. He needs to be urged. He needs to be shoved. He's got all this power. You know, he's so meek and mild, but it's there. It's under. We just got to shove him and push him in. He'll come through. Don't worry about it, maybe. Some people think that's what, what Judas thought when he sold him there for 30 pieces. But here there was something you realize as you look back. No. No, there was something there. There wasn't anything noble, you know, about Judas in the slightest way. Jesus said he was the son of perdition. And he was through and through. You can't come up with any good sort of a thing about that. But either there was as far as one set of all these people that were there, one group of all of them, you know, it would be, that would be there, they would be ones that they, they wanted a Messiah that, and that was like Moses. And, and either Jesus is going to show himself like that. He's going to deliver them. Or else at the same time, who cares? Who cares at all who he is and what he can do? They lose interest in him. There's something, if he's not going to be that, if he's not good to deliver us, he's not good for anything at all. Let him die. But then there's another perspective. Other people that are there in the crowd, besides the Jews, there's the Romans. Now the Romans, they're, they're, they, they had an entirely different perspective. They're there watching this whole event coming along. And as it's happening, they had a totally different opinion of it for sure. And the Romans, they're, they're strong. They're the mighty oppressor. Here they're one, they dominated and they dominated powerfully over the Jews. It wasn't a fair fight. They had them by every angle. There, there was no fear that they really had, but they always were afraid of an uprising with them. But to the Roman, they were somebody, they were the, the highest cut of society. They were nobility. They sat in the seat of power, of glory, of royalty. They were the dominating force in the world. And to be a Roman and to be able to declare your Roman identity and citizenship puts you in another world, puts you in another class. The Jews at that time looked down and despised an insecure, weak bunch of arrogant, troublesome people to the Romans. They posed no real threat. Always hard to get along with. Stubborn to them, you know, and just itching for a way to, to stir up something constantly there. And so there was something there they knew because they came in. You know, they had, you know, two or three as many time, times as many people that came there in Jerusalem during the Passover. It filled with Jews all over to come and celebrate the Passover. And the Jews knew only too well that the Passover was their deliverance from Egypt that Moses gave them. And they, the zealots, they always knew this was a time they, if they could stir things up. They, they've got two great things working for them. Number one, we're there in massive numbers. Number two, it's memorializing the greatest event in Israel's history, the deliverance from Egypt. And if ever there was a time, they would have a shot. And so Rome knew this. They doubled and tripled their forces, just brought them down during the Passover, keep an eye. They'd built, you know, the Antonio Fortress overlooking, looking down on the temple as a mockery almost to it all year round. But there, especially at this time, they could look down, see if there's any disturbance or any gatherings there that they needed to check into and break up. Watching things that were going on, but at the same time, as they looked down, you know, from there, and they looked at all of this, and, you know, there with the potential of it. They didn't think much of it. 
they could look at all of this and they, you know, they realize there's never really been a threat. Nothing that we look at. And here's somebody that seemingly, potentially could be, but he's not doing anything about it. He's no real threat in Jesus, they saw, of him seemingly. And here there was something, though, that they, have, they had to be looking here at this triumphant entry. <laughs> they had to be looking at this, quote, unquote, triumphant entry. And as they would watch that, the Roman mind would say, that's a triumphant entry? You've got to be kidding me. Have you ever been to Rome? Have you ever seen a triumphant entry in Rome? We know how to do a triumphant entry when a general has been out and he's gained new territory. He's defeated an enemy. And he, there he is coming back. Now, we know how to do a triumphant entry that there, you know, it just expanded the territory. And they were, boy, this guy's got a triumph that we're going to celebrate. And, uh, and, and boy, when they did it, it was like a New York City ticker tape after, you know, the war or something. There, I mean, it was something that came in, the general would march in there, and he'd have massive forces that they'd been out, you know, to battle with. They would have then, you know, the, the pick of the, the conquered, the enemies that they had conquered, that they would bring act of the, their leaders, their rulers, their generals. And they would hold them, and they'd be chained in and brought in. Caesar would meet them. The senators would be there. It was a You looked at this, and that was a triumphant entry. They then lead him into the arena, where then they fill the arena, and then they released all the, these captives there of the enemy that they had conquered there in a, an arena of animals to watch them be devoured for sport. Now that's an entry. That's a triumph. That's what's going on. They're looking here, no doubt, at, at watching this with Jesus, you know, coming in and looking at this, and it had, it had to be hilarious to them. This is like little kids who've got their mother and father's clothes on out playing house or something. What is this all about? They're looking at it. He's meek, so mild, so lowly. They're riding upon a donkey like this. No army behind him. No captives behind him. No royalty ahead of him to meet him. Nothing. And here they're looking at all of this, and it had to be to them what they were used to seeing. And just see, I don't see any power. There's no royalty here. There's no conquest here. There's no triumph here. There's nothing here. They didn't see a thing. And here, though, we're told, going on a few verses later in John 13, verse 3, now is closing in on the crucifixion, Jesus knowing that the Father has given unto all things into his hand, and that he has come from God and was going to God. Here, Jesus, now he's in town. Now he's there. Knowing that he has come from God, knowing he's going back, knowing all power in heaven and earth is given unto me, all everything that spoke the worlds into existence is going to fold them all up one day as a vesture. Now, all that raw power, all that strength, all of it right there, flowing through his veins. And what does he do with it? How does he use it? The next verse. Knowing all this, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and he girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. 
He's got eternal power to do anything. And what does he want to use it for? Wash feet. Forgive sins. Get into the heart of the soul. And you know, this is something that triumphant entry, it never ends. It is not just a memorial of an event that one day happened that we as Christians gather every year together and so on. I remember that. Yes, what a, you know, a wonderful event. No, it is something here that it never stops. It is something if we're really celebrating, truly celebrating the uh, triumphant entry, we should have something still yet with rejoices within us greatly. It shouts within us. Because here Jesus, he comes there, and as he gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. And you know the story. The moments he comes to Peter, to wash Peter's feet, and Peter looked at this, you'll never wash my feet. You'll never do this. What are you doing? This is below you. This is below anybody. This is the, the lowest of servants. So what are you doing? And he looks at you and he says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus looks up at him and his eyes meet. Peter. If I don't wash your feet, we're done. It's over. You don't know why I'm here. And somehow another pierces his heart and he turns. He said, then, then wash me all. Wash everything. Jesus smiled. No, Peter. You've already been washed. It's your feet now. It's your feet now, Peter. You know, even the ones that have been washed, and I would imagine the great majority of you have been washed. You've been cleansed. You know that joy. You know sin's forgiven. Today, Jesus doesn't come and say, you know, where we're saying, wash me all. No, you've been washed. You've been clean. You know the joy of your salvation. But there's never a time he doesn't come and say the triumphant entry is washing your feet. It's where you've been today, Peter. It's just the dirt, just the sin just the humanness there, there that I intercede for you on your behalf every moment of every day. I'll ever live to make intercession for you. Every moment. Why? Because you'll need it every moment. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He washes us and keeps us clean. And in his constant washing, the blood of Christ goes on cleansing. And I realize today, there may be, you know, most of us know the triumphant entry of coming into town of the washing there of all of us in a sense, but do we know the celebration of Jesus cleanse my soul again? None of us have arrived. None of us are without that needing, not a one. There's any of you that think you may have arrived, uh, turn over and ask your wife. Have I arrived, honey? <laughs> they say, uh, not quite, just a little bit of work. <laughs> Maybe a lot, you know, but here, when we look there in our lives, realize, Jesus, that's what we celebrate. That is what we're here for. That's what it is. And here on one hand, as you look at this, this is far more regal than Rome ever knew. This is far more than, you know, than any, what, what Jesus did, far more than any Roman ever dreamed of. Far more wonderful than any, uh, than any Jew watching this, a dominate, do this. That now, we can all look and say, Jesus, dominate again. Cleanse me again. It's greater than that. And here, while one segment of you know, the world looks and says, I don't need him. 
or else, you know, I don't need him at all. The Roman mind looks at that. Uh, hey, I, you know, I, I'm royalty. I'm dignified. I've arrived. I've got a home, 401k program, car. I'm settled. I don't I have need of nothing. I'm fine. I'm Roman. Okay. He comes through town, you see nothing. To the zealot, watches him come in and through, and, and they look at that and say, come on, be, be, dominate my world. Set me free in it. You know, there's a lot of theology out there, dominion theology. Stuff out there says you give your life to Christ. You will reign in this life. You will, you will, the world will be your footstool. You will be able to command things in. You'll be able to speak them into, you know, in his name. It'll be yours for the asking. They're zealots. But then there's others. They were there lined up that day. They were needy. There are ones that there's no royalty about me. Nothing awesome. There's ones there that would look there and as Jesus would pass by, they see him. They see the love. They see they can go back and collect the where he was and what he had done and who he had ministered to and the lives that he had touched, the people that he had set free. And they were amongst them. They'd heard his sermons. You know, they, they, they'd ate the fruit of his labor. And they were filled and satisfied. And they realized no one has ever spoken like him. He's from another world. And he's come to take me there. He wants my soul. And I get it. And while one eye didn't see him and the other eye didn't care to see him as he comes through riding so meek and mild and humbly and lowly and as a servant, there one eye looks at him and meet and his eye sees them and their eyes meet. They say, that's my Jesus. I see you. I see who you are. I see what you do. Celebrate it again in me, please. Cleanse me again, please. Set me free. Wash me again. Fill me again. Ride triumphantly into my heart yet again and be my king. And maybe some of us, we've known and he's washed us all. We know it is to be forgiven. We've, you know, we've received Christ. But maybe it's been some time since we've really come and seen him as we know we should. Jesus, cleanse me again. Wash me today afresh. Take over. Bring me home. I know where I belong. You triumphantly marching into my soul taking the seat of leadership and of authority and of royalty within me. If anyone has earned it, it is you. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you, dear Lord, for your word. We thank you for your care. And Lord, I thank you that each person here today as we find ourselves, here as we sit, Lord, I pray for maybe some that would look there and say, do I have a Roman eye? Am I looking for somebody there that will satisfy that eye? Or do I have the zealot's eye that this is what I want you to do for me? Or do I have the needy eye that says, you come and do for me what you please? 
I know you want to wash. I know you want to cleanse. I know you want to fill. Here Moses, he was a great deliverer. He just took them from one side of a river to another. You've come to take me from one side of eternity to the other. You've come to take me out of the pit of hell and deliver me into heaven and conform me to your image to make me in your likeness forever. Lord, may you bless and may you strengthen each and every one of us today. May you give us 20-20 vision. May we see you clearly for who you are. May your blessing rest upon each of us. We ask it, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.